Welcome to The Investigation. I'm Chris Blasto, Senior Executive Producer here at ABC News. I'm joined by my colleague John Santucci in Washington. Today, we're joined by former Homeland Security Advisor and ABC News consultant, Tom Bossert. Well, Tom, listen, about a month ago or so, you were one of the first people to come forward and really say to the president that he was being ill-served by Rudy Giuliani. Let's listen to what you said. The whistleblower's complaint says that White House officials were deeply disturbed by the president's phone call with Zelensky. What was your reaction? Yeah, I'm deeply disturbed by it as well. And this entire mess has me frustrated, George. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, you and I both lived through the impeachment of President Clinton and saw how frustrating and dividing it can be. And I've just spent a week uh, overseas. And I'll tell you, the whole world is watching this. The removal of a president is a, is a big and, and serious deal. But the removal of a president in not only a democracy, but the biggest democracy in the world is really a weighty matter. And I hope that everyone can sift through the evidence and be very careful, as I've seen a lot of rush to judgment this week. That said, it is a bad day and a bad week for this president and for this country if he is asking for political dirt on an opponent. Now, what the president is referring to there is a debunked conspiracy theory that somehow Ukraine, not Russia, hacked the Democratic emails in 2016 and that Ukraine might have the DNC server or Hillary's emails. The details are both convoluted and false. And during your time in the White House, you explained that to the president, right? I did. It's not only a conspiracy theory, it is completely debunked. You know, I, I don't want to be glib about this matter, but uh, last year, uh, retired former Senator Judd Gregg wrote a piece in The Hill magazine saying the three ways are the five ways to impeach oneself. And the third way was to hire Rudy Giuliani. And, and at this point, I am deeply frustrated with what he and the legal team is doing and repeating that debunked theory to the president. It sticks in his mind when he hears it over and over again. And for clarity here, George, let me just again repeat that it has no validity. The United States government reached its conclusion on attributing to Russia the DNC hack in 2016 before it even communicated it to the FBI and long before the FBI ever knocked on the door at the DNC. So, Tom, now there's been a long list of people that have come forward and are testifying on the Hill. I've actually spoken to a lot of people, even in the White House, who also were very troubled by Rudy Giuliani and his influence with the president. In the last five weeks, what, what has the experience been for you since you made those comments? Well, look, <clears throat> Chris, thanks. I appreciate being on. It's my first time on your podcast, and uh, being here with Santucci makes it all the, all the much better. Uh, I've... Um, uh, I've got to make sure uh, that I, I state it again, you know, pretty narrowly, right? So there's a tendency for everyone to want me now to go after Rudy Giuliani. But what I did and what I said was a very tailored and directed assault on the notion that perhaps somehow or another the intelligence community's assessment that the DNC was hacked by Russia was inaccurate. And so for anyone to suggest otherwise, I believe, uh, puts them in a position of giving the president bad advice. Now, I know Rudy came out later and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. I made a number of defensive statements, and that may all well be true with respect to his legal strategy, but it's not true with respect to what I know for a living, and that is the veracity of that intelligence community finding and that report. And, uh, you know, frankly, he's not read it, and he can't read it, and, and the classification level on that remains such that he never probably will. 
But I would direct people, if they don't believe it, because they have to read the unclassified version and can't see and impeach the sources and methods directly, uh, to go and read instead the Trump-era DOJ indictment of the actual Russian uh, GRU officers that conducted that operation. It's detailed, it's thoughtful, and so essentially uh, either that indictment is wrong and it's pretty detailed and survives the reasonable doubt standard of our criminal system, or the conspiracy theory that perhaps the DNC was hacked by Ukraine or others is wrong. So one of the two of them has to be wrong, and I let the readers of those things assess the messenger and assess the details themselves, but I've reached my conclusion long ago, and what I did was call him out for at any point uh, with or to or around the president suggesting that maybe it wasn't Russia that hacked our 2016 election system, both with an influence campaign and by directly taking emails from the DNC and then distributing them in politically opportune time. So uh, we watched all that happen. We came to that conclusion in ways that are quite different from a forensic investigation. And we came to that conclusion with a high degree of certainty. And uh, that's it. And that's the narrow parameters where I'll stay in my assessment of the president's legal team. But when you see a lot of these State Department officials that have been testifying, and especially Bill Taylor's testimony, which came out, what are your thoughts on his testimony? Yeah, no, certainly I understand that others are now saying that the president was more more poorly served in a broader sense uh, through this informal foreign affairs or foreign policy making process that Bill Taylor described. Of course, I've done nothing but listen to punditry on this, and I've read uh, Taylor's, uh, I guess, leaked or, or provided opening statement. And um, it's pretty clear and powerful in his view that there were two processes afoot. Uh, the formal process that he was in charge of responding and reporting up to through the chains at the State Department, Secretary Pompeo and the president, and then a separate process that he felt was being coordinated by the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. I don't have any insight into any of that. Of course, I'm on the outside now, but it does seem like that's what's gaining most of the traction nowadays. I, again, uh, that was not my criticism at the time. If that was an informal process and if it was as he depicts it, of course, that's going to be fodder for the impeachment investigation. Let me just ask you this, Tom, because you obviously were the president's first Homeland Security Advisor. There's been a lot of changes over the course of three years of this administration. Can you walk us through, from your time there, if conversations or uh, ideas or concepts like this were presented in the early days of the administration, how would you have handled something like this? Because this was not just a random phone call that came out of nowhere towards the end of the July. This was many months in the works of people meeting with the president, meeting with others in the White House, advisors on the outside, trying to get something done here. What would have been the, the process by which it would have gone through the filters when you and others were serving the president? <clears throat> well, you know, there's a lot to that question. Uh, certainly none of this was taking place. I had some conversations with and around the president and his cabinet on, on matters of European security and, and Ukraine policy, but, you know, I'll never get into my discussions with the president on, on forming towards really a third question, and, and that is, what would I do if I was aware of some uh, outside influence? And I don't think that's um, entirely what we're seeing here. I think the president, every president, is entitled to kind of the informal kitchen cabinet of advice that he receives from people that don't formally serve him. Uh, the problem here now is, of course, whether uh, it went further in, a, in two directions. If Mayor Giuliani was advising the president as his lawyer or as his friend, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And by the way, it doesn't mean his advice is wrong or bad. But if he's then going back and carrying messages in the other direction, 
it's not entirely illegal, but it's just not good to a coordinated delivery of U.S. government policy and messaging, right? And so if you have a secretary of state delivering messages on one hand and an informal advisor delivering messages on the other, if they're not coordinated, you run into problems. And I think that's the thrust of what Taylor testified to. But I guess, you know, I, the, the question for you, though, is that, you know... So if the, I became aware of that, right, I would mm-hmm. have uh, strongly advised both groups to talk to each other before they started delivering messages. And I would have separately strongly advised the president to take hold of that and to make sure that the team was all coordinating, whether they were formal or informal. Uh, and I would further suggest that it becomes cl- close to inappropriate to have someone uh, in that role that's not working for the government Uh, But it would depend on the nature of their behavior and their role. But then do you think, though, Tom, in this case, that was there a failure here of the guardrails of the people in the administration that could have stopped the president from himself on this one? Well, I'm not understanding really what what we want him to stop and what we want him to start. As a procedural question, uh, he can get advice from wherever he'd like to get that advice. Uh, You know, you're asking me on a foundational level whether his current staff is competent and um and you're also asking me whether he is and you know i'm i'm not here to tell you that either he or his staff are incompetent uh i don't know what's happened internally yeah but no but let me jump in let me jump in one there but isn't it the fact though tom that like john bolton who was there that the president had lost faith in john bolton so therefore he wasn't listening to him and that job is important to say, hey, Mr. President, your lawyer, your friend Rudy is going rogue here. You know, this really shouldn't go on. It should go through proper channels. Yeah, right. A lot of that seems to be the case from the outside. But um, I used to sit inside the White House and read a lot of news accounts about what I was supposedly in and out of the doghouse for. And then I'd walk upstairs and sit with the president. We'd have a good laugh about it because it wasn't accurate or anywhere near the reality of our relationship. And I suspect the same is true between current officials and, and between Bolton and the president. But let me answer it this way, right? Because I think you guys are onto something that's really the topic of kitchen table debate around the country right now. There's a couple of questions ongoing that have to do with essentially the, the level of trust between this president and the career machinations of our institutions in our federal government. And that trust has been broken in a lot of ways. People on the career side of our government have leaked information that put the president in an understandably paranoid posture, and the president has in return made decisions without counseling their advice, or in some cases made that decision and announced it without running through those channels that would normally announce those decisions and coordinate their implementation. And as a result, I'm afraid we've reached a point where that distrust is going to start to affect our ability and the president's ability to govern. Uh, But I want to make sure it's couched in that way. Because I think trust requires a two-way street, and I'm really disappointed where we are right now. I'm deeply disappointed, and I'm worried about it. Because if we can't find a way to reach some detente between the career and professional institutions and the political apparatus that was elected to run those institutions, then we're going to have a paralysis, if not worse. I'm not entirely ready to to say that we've reached that paralysis level, but I am increasingly worried about it. And so that's really the thrust of your question. And I don't know exactly what the answer is. I think the president's capable of rising above this moment, and I think he's capable of inspiring a little bit more leadership and trust in the at least senior levels of our government. But right now, he's being, if his instinct is to take us in that direction right now, uh, a bit undermined with the public discourse. But don't you think, I mean... He, the president, maybe in that following your argument, made things a little worse when he decided to pull out of Syria. 
on his own? I mean, does that help the situation? Right. So let's talk about Syria a little bit, <clears throat> because on one hand, all of us, anybody that's credible that really wants to tell you this um, publicly or privately will, will tell you that we all knew there would be a political reckoning one day that grew out of our decision, our U.S. decision, to arm the SDF forces. Uh, the, the PKK and YPG outgrowth of that group had been considered terrorists by Western authorities and by the United States uh, prior to that decision. Uh, and remember, Turkey is not uh, acting in our interests, and they haven't been for some time. It's very important to remember that the United States, back in that time frame, 2013-2014 time frame, asked Turkey to help us with the growing ISIS problem, asked us, uh, asked Turkey, rather, to uh, provide its Insurlik air base and other uh, support mechanisms, and Turkey refused. And Turkey knew that the consequence of that refusal would leave us with no choice but to partner with and arm our Kurdish partners in the SDF. And so for them to say no, you know, is really quite unforgivable. And it should be remembered as a lever throughout these discussions. It should undermine everyone's view of President Erdogan or anyone that has a positive view of him as our ally. Uh, and that said, they shouldn't really be able to now cry wolf or cry some kind of, you know, offense. That said, right, everyone, including, I think, President Obama and his team, knew there would be a political reckoning for that decision to arm the SDF. At some point, uh, we would defeat ISIS or get to a point where we had controlled them sufficiently, and we would have to figure some way to disentangle ourselves from that decision without exposing the Kurds to slaughter uh, and, and to try to sustain a relationship with Turkey as a country and NATO ally. And so uh, its leadership, notwithstanding, those things come and go, and he was a little bit, President Erdogan, uh, unsympathetic to us. Uh, and so this decision that President Trump took is exactly the point we've, we've hit on. He took the decision, and he didn't use the normal channels and processes to discuss how to implement it, when to implement it, the consequences, and so forth. I'm not – well, look, I wasn't there, so I'll be careful. But I'm fairly certain, given my conversations with the president and people around him, that at least as I left, he had a deep understanding of the situation in the area. Uh, he might not have understood and marshaled all the different historic facts that I just described, um, but he had a pretty good understanding of it. And so whatever led him to make his decision and when he made it and how, I wasn't there. I wasn't on those phone calls. Uh, but I suspect that part of why he made that decision and announced it so atypically was this trust issue that I talked to you a little bit about uh, a little bit ago. If he doesn't trust the institutions and the people around him to keep his decisions to make sure that they don't try to talk him out of his decisions, to not leak those decisions in an untimely way, you know, then he's going to continue to announce his decisions via Twitter or some other means of direct announcement, right? And so, you know, look, it's, it's all unfortunate because we could better manage our withdrawal. Uh, we could better manage his decision-making process to his intent and to his effect uh, if we could reestablish these lines of trust. Well, and it would be seen that maybe now one of the greatest accomplishments of his presidency right now is the killing of Baghdadi. And that only comes by being in the region. Would you agree? And keeping troops there? I would agree that it's a good day for, the, for freedom in the United States of America that al-Baghdadi is, is no longer with us. You know, this is near and dear to my reason for existing in, in my career, my political life, and my professional life. So <clears throat> the defeat of any kind of terrorist ideology group and leader like that is a good day. You're asking me a question that requires, you know, a whole lot of politically loaded assumptions. 
operationally, I think it's always good to maintain relations with the SDF forces and the Kurds in the region because they do provide us intelligence. Uh, I think the president's been convinced now to keep some troop presence there. But here's the thing, right? We're going to have to balance his desire for a retrenchment or, or not, not maybe complete absenteeism around the world, uh, but for a different balanced share of, of the global defense with other partners. Uh, with the need to keep those intelligence sources and the need to protect ourselves and the need to uh, hopefully keep other parts of the world from degenerating into into mass slaughters and uh, genocides and so forth. So uh, if, if you're asking, would that intelligence have existed had we in a hypothetical world been six months from his decision and had pulled out completely? I really don't know. I'm, I'm technically out of the loop on this stuff. Although I think if I heard the president uh, at the podium the other day, he suggested that a lot of the intelligence was uh, signals intelligence and not necessarily human intelligence. I don't know how much of that's true or what the balance of it is. But if it were all human intelligence, obviously the answer to your question is yes. But um, I think that we have a pretty broad reach. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Investigation. I'm Chris Vlasto. We're here with John Santucci, and our special guest is Tom Bossert, former Homeland Security Advisor to President Trump and now an ABC News consultant. Tom, let's get your thoughts now on impeachment. Twenty-some years ago, you and I both, you know, uh, were involved in the impeachment of Bill Clinton, you working for Ken Starr and me still working at ABC. When you see this impeachment and the way the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi are handling this impeachment inquiry. Do you think they're, they're, they're handling this wrong by making it a private and, and secretive and et cetera and not having public testimony? So uh, we have known each other a long time, and, um, and I was on a different committee, not the Judiciary Committee at the time of impeachment. So as a young staffer aspiring to go to law school and be a prosecutor one day, I was there in the middle of this very heady time I didn't make my decision to switch into the security field until and on the day of 9-11. And so I did have a kind of staffer's back row to a lot of that process. The answer, it really lies in that history, right? So the answer is um, my only touch on the impeachment process back then was I was asked by the then counsel of the Judiciary Committee if I could help them draft and, and put into proper form the subpoenas they had to issue at the time. And so that was something I had learned how to do. So I I wrote the subpoenas for the impeachment process. That was my um, small claim to fame back then. I uh, didn't fully recognize the, the historical context at the time. And now I look back on it with a smile, but also with a little bit of a frown. And I think I said this in the lead up to the last time I was on this week in the sound that you played earlier. Uh, it's a really big and momentous proposition to remove a president of the United States. Any leader of any democracy being removed is a big deal. But, you know, I spent a lot of time traveling around the world and um, they're watching this. And the notion that we might remove a duly elected president from the largest, most representative, aspirational democracy in the world, it shakes some other countries and their populace to their core. They're foundationally concerned when they see things like that. It's hard, hard kind of to explain to, to some Americans that haven't traveled a lot, but the United States really does still carry a lot of sway and a lot of inspiration around the world. And so, you know, I say I smiled, but I also look back on that time as um, pretty serious. And uh, we came pretty close, or we, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have any desired outcome, but uh, we as a country came pretty close to removing a president back then. And um, 
I'm not sure what the consequences of that might have been to the world. Uh, perhaps it all worked out for the right. And, and uh, people, I think, have been able to judge President Clinton's behavior, and I think they understand what he did and didn't do. Well, and that was the second term. I mean, isn't the argument that I think Chris Christie was even saying on this week that, you know, when you have an election seven months away or uh, if impeachment happens, isn't that, shouldn't that be the judger? Isn't that the voters should decide? Isn't that? Well, yeah, look, it's certainly the more practical and and reasonable, um, you know, process, right? So, you know, think about this. Uh, The founders thought that impeachment was a necessary, a necessary element to our Constitution and to our system of checks and balances. I mean, you can go read Federalist 65 and you go look at the Philadelphia Convention debates. And, you know, the, the founders that we've revered in our country had quite a bit of debate and there's quite a bit on the record that you can read about this. But they felt it was an ultimately foundational and necessary element of our constitutional form of government. And yet, in history's hindsight, we've used it three times and really only twice. Uh, whereas elections happen re- regularly every four years, as you know. And so, uh, it's certainly the more reliable process, and it's one that the country can come to terms with, uh, or at least come to terms with a little bit easier. You know, the representative form of government that we have, in which, you know, the people we elect and send to Congress making decisions on our behalf, uh, that's suffered over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, even when I first got to Congress, <clears throat> that was considered not only the trusted norm, but it was considered a good form of government. And now increasingly I hear people uh, wanting to have their own individual say and individual vote. It's this whole popular vote phenomena that we talk about. But let me, let me go back. Uh, so here, here's a real interesting observation. So in that time frame, uh, and, and this is important to understand, there was also an investigation of President Clinton for campaign finance uh, irregularities. Uh, the allegation or the concern at the time was that foreign governments were pushing money through our campaign finance system into the Clinton campaign in a way that might give them some leverage over the sitting president. And in particular, uh, there was a lot of Chinese money coming in through the process at the time. So the question was, uh, was the president being compromised indirectly or directly? And was there really any evidence that he knew of this phenomenon and that he was giving favorable policy back to the Chinese in return for their investment? And so quite interesting, right? Now here we are with people alleging that foreign governments are influencing our president uh, that was the same background in the Clinton era. Meanwhile, that wasn't, just to clarify, that wasn't part of the impeachment inquiry. That was a congressional investigation. No, right? That, that's right. But let me, yep. I raise it for a reason, though, because, well, let me, let, me, let me tell you why. So the process that led to the impeachment for President Clinton started with a report from an independent counsel. The independent counsel statute has since lapsed. It doesn't exist. Uh, there was a a majority view that it constituted essentially a fourth branch and therefore an unconstitutional branch of government, and so it was allowed to lapse, and we don't have that process anymore. Uh, but when we did, and of course you alluded to Ken Starr, but he was just one of several independent counsels investigating President Clinton. When we did have that construct, it was a criminal investigation conducted by an executive branch or independent but executively housed branch of government. And so at that point, they had grand jury subpoenas, the, the power of a criminal investigation, the you know, constitutional interpretation of the Supreme Court from the 70s that said criminal investigations trump uh, executive privilege clauses and, and claims and so forth. And so with all that power and weight and with the 6E rules that protect grand jury 
testimony and evidence. Uh, there was a very long and thoughtful investigation done essentially quietly and in, in private uh, by professional investigators, FBI agents, and so forth for almost uh, well over a year. You tell me, Chris, you might remember, but it was, it was longer than a year, perhaps upwards of two years. And that investigation produced what they called the Star Report, but the report from the Independent Council to Congress that was replete with evidence, testimony, footnotes, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of boxes <coughs> of evidence that could be gone through by the Congress uh, that we had stored over in a building that became, you know, the epicenter of uh, you know, attempted, con- you know, reporter break-ins and all kinds of stuff. You remember that, yes. that time frame. So the idea then then was that the investigation was already done. And so from the time the report arrived on the Hill until the time uh, that the Senate sat in judgment of the president and ultimately acquitted him was about five months. It seemed lightning fast. And so I think some of the uh, impeachment types today, the Democrats that are leading this effort, are running into the reality that they don't have that. And that if they were, if they really wanted to have a thoughtful evidence uh, presentation for, uh, for the Senate to consider, that it would take them a lot longer mm-hmm. than five months because, of course, the Star Report was two years in the making with a different set of authorities. And so where we are today is the Democrats have to run essentially a process that looks like or mirrors the investigative process that the criminal justice system uses that looks like or mirrors a grand jury process. But the only real tool they have is a congressional subpoena. Uh, and that is a far more political tool. The powers are less certain. The separation of powers between the legislative and executive branches complicate this quite a bit. Claims of executive privilege have real and thoughtful merit and weight in the face of a congressional subpoena. And so here we stand. Uh, We're at a little bit of a stalemate. But I raised the investigation into the campaign finance irregularities for a reason because, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as kind of neutral as I can be on this, but the process used during that investigation did include Democrats in private and closed depositions, but it was still a process that looks at least as similar. I haven't gotten too far into the details, but it looks pretty similar to what the Democrats are currently doing in this impeachment inquiry. So there's some precedent in Congress from the Republican side for running an investigation of a president with small, and uh, secret's the wrong word, but uh, small and private depositions with both parties there to you know, afforded an opportunity to ask questions. The problem, and this is the, the case then as it is today, is if either side ends up abusing that process and leaking selectively any of the information from that private set of depositions to try to shape public perception, it's going to ruin the entire process. And I think that's what's happening today. So there's a sense that these private depositions might be fair and precedented, Uh, but that the Democrats or maybe the Republicans, I don't know, in a reverse kind of psychology, uh, are starting to selectively leak things from those discussions. And if that happens, that, of course, ruins everybody's trust in the process. You know, for those of us that are obviously following uh, this impeachment proceeding for a first time, I found it interesting, something you said um, a little while ago, that your role was actually writing the subpoenas that went out to the Clinton White House for everything here. So I guess what I'm asking is that as someone who has written those documents, those requests um, from an administration in the past, to see the tactic that the Trump administration has taken, which is thanks but no thanks, what do you think about that? Well, again, what's old is new again, right? There was a 
the line from the Republican Party back in the Clinton era was that they're stonewalling us. And I think one of the congressional committees had a fake, fake stone wall built on one of their congressional hearing room walls. Um, and nowadays there's the same allegation being made. But again, this is the point, right? So this is now an investigation of the executive branch by the legislative branch who has a legislative or congressional subpoena power. But the enforcement of it becomes a very uncertain matter of uh, cooperation and negotiation. So here's the answer to that. What we're seeing play out is interesting. The deputy national security advisor under Ambassador Bolton was a gentleman named Charlie Kupperman. And um, by all accounts, a a respected, thoughtful uh, mind in the national security community. Uh, Served as the deputy national security advisor under Ambassador Bolton for however long he was there, a year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's now been subpoenaed by Congress, by the Democrats in Congress. And, of course, the Democrats are now saying that he's guilty of obstruction for not complying. Well, I disagree, and I'm not making a political argument. I'm suggesting that he is stuck between two very difficult places. As as a former executive branch employee with a great deal of access to the President of the United States, the President and the White House is asking him not to testify, and they're asserting their executive privilege over what he may or may not say and whether he's allowed to say any of it. And so he's stuck with their legitimate request uh, not to testify under uh, the, pr- the quite broad uh, executive privilege claim. And simultaneously, he wants to respect Congress as an institution, not necessarily the Democrats or the Republicans or their intent. Uh, and so he wants to respond to their subpoena. So what does he do? So interestingly, he has gone to court and asked the judge to weigh in and give him some advice as to which way he should go because he's being torn. So as a result, in my view, he's not guilty of contempt. He's doing something. He might not have shown up on the day and the time allotted in that subpoena, but very few people do. Uh, what he's doing is he's trying to find some way to figure out his allegiance, his 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 responsibility, uh, and 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 the legal liabilities that you know might befall him if he does it the wrong way. And so, I don't think uh, here's my prediction. I don't I don't be careful here, but I don't think a judge is going to rule on that, or at least not quickly. I think my guess is the judge is going to say, "Look, you guys need to work this out." Uh, and here is the root of what I've been trying to describe with my walk down memory lane of the problem. The root of the problem is when you have a legislative branch request and an executive branch request, the two of them have co-equal status under our system of government, and they've reached an impasse. And so I think what the court will end up doing is saying, you guys have to negotiate some solution to this. You have to find some modicum of agreement, some procedural process that will allow both sides to get what they need with some compromise. And but, so, it, but is there is there precedent, though, Tom? I mean, Chris, I can even ask you this question. I mean, is there precedent of what happened during the Clinton era? I mean, when the Republicans were seizing documents, asking for this information from the Clinton White House, that the Clinton White House said no. I mean, wh- what did witnesses do then? I mean, are we are we seeing a repeat performance here? They're going yeah, absolutely, asking we, are. <clears throat> absolutely we are. Absolutely, uh, we are. They some agreement often was reached. Some. Some compromise was reached where people. But did they have to actually go and try to appeal to a judge? Though, now, and, with now the, the difference being the investigation that Congress led into other matters was not the Clinton administration's favorite thing to cooperate with, right? And so, they ultimately did cooperate in some instances and didn't in others. And at some point, famously, uh, they held Janet Reno. The Congress held Janet Reno in contempt. And so this has all been played out before, and not only in ancient history, but in my lifetime. And I'm 45 years old, so this is not um, that old. But on the impeachment side of the Clinton question, remember, they had a grand jury power and an independent counsel and an investigation that had much different criminal powers and authorities. And so that investigation was not stonewalled, although 
there were grand attempts made by the Clinton administration to test their powers in that case. Ultimately, uh, those powers in that independent counsel process, which I'm not advocating for, but it was stronger, more powerful, ended up allowing Congress to move faster to an impeachment. In today's world, I think it's going to be very partisan. I think it's going to be very slow. And I don't think there's any real answer to break the logjam procedurally between the legislative and executive branch. So this pipe dream, though, that, that we've been hearing that, oh, we're going to have everything wrapped up and done by the end of the year, you're not subscribing to that. Well, <clears throat> um, based on your experience, this whole thing is a political process. And I don't mean that as a partisan process. It might be that, too. Uh, but it's a political process. And so if the Congress wanted today, tomorrow, with or without any process to vote on one or 10 or a thousand articles of impeachment, regardless of, of the content, they could. It would be a simple question of bringing it to a vote and re- receiving enough votes to uh, to pass the, the articles. So uh, the Democrats have that kind of control right now. If they wanted to, they could bring it to fruition at any point. Of course, there are people that believe that's going to look like a political maneuver meant to impeach the president, meaning that's the House process, and push it to the Senate and, and make senators. Remember, there's two halves to this. The first half is what you do to, to President Trump. You know, if you get a couple of Republican senators to break and agree with some of the articles of impeachment, then, of course, the Democrats politically will say that this is a bipartisan impeachment. And, and, and of course, we couldn't convict and remove him because of his supporters. Uh, but there was a bipartisan conclusion that he was guilty of removable offenses and so on. And they'll use that through the campaign. And the desire there seems to be to make him uh, weaker for the 2020 reelection campaign. But, of course, there's the other uh, subordinate political calculus here, and that is to force every senator, some of whom are up for re-election, uh, but certainly if they're not up this cycle, they will be, uh, on the record to vote on what they think of this president and the articles that they're presented. So there'll be, um, uh, there'll be uh, Republican senators uh, on the record with their thoughts and views of this president. So those are the two political calculations. If you're really trying to investigate the criminality of some alleged conduct, Doing it through a congressional investigation, of course, is the wrong way to do it. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this, Tom. This was actually really, really insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank my producers, Eric Malo and Emily Rachowski. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. And we'll be back next week for another episode of The Investigation. The Investigation.